Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. This will be our last Sunday in 1 Corinthians 14. I heard someone sigh. Good. That's how I feel. I don't know if that was a sigh of, uh, or, oh, like, finally. 1 Corinthians 14. Listen to this summary of an account that I think can be witnessed in many churches today. I stood in the darkened auditorium of the worship service. The music thumped with a deep and intense bass as the ground vibrated, the fog danced on the stage. The lights illuminated the lead singer with an angelic glow. The pastor rocked back and forth and promised, I can feel the Holy Spirit anointing will fall at any moment. I can feel myself slipping into a deep rhythmic trance as the music pulses over me. Then the pastor declares, he's come. The Holy Spirit has come. Let the fire fall. People rush down the aisle. My adrenaline is pumping. The room is filled with a euphoria. People are falling down. Some are crying out. Others are laughing uncontrollably, shaking on the floor. The, the pastor calls people on stage, lays hands on them. They shout and they fall back and faint. And what I read for you is a summary of what happens, what you could witness if you went to many churches, frankly, around the globe and they claim that the work of the Holy Spirit is such that people lose control of their bodily functions or their body and their mind and their will. And they also lose control of the service. They claim that falling down, crying out, laughing out of control is the Holy Spirit's work. So they believe that the Holy Spirit is at work. You can see that when someone loses control or the service kind of goes out of control. And they call that being slain in the spirit, maybe the, uh, the spirit's anointing of the service. But what we're going to see in our text this morning of 1 Corinthians 14, that Paul said the opposite is actually true of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. 1 Corinthians 14 teaches that when the Holy Spirit is in control of a person and of a worship service, the people will have self-control, and the service will be conducted in a proper, orderly way. That's what our section of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40, teaches. That when the Holy Spirit is in control of you and of this service, then you will have self-control, and the service will be conducted in an orderly way. In fact, notice 1 Corinthians 14.40, because this verse regulates this passage and our worship. Verse 40 says, 1 Corinthians 14.40, But all things, speaking of the worship service, all things should be done decently and in order. 
And remember, the context of this passage is Paul teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how we are to exercise those gifts when we gather as a church. And instead of disorder and chaos and people shaking and throwing themselves on the floor and screaming out, Paul called on the church to order their service in a way that glorifies God, that is proper, and that intentionally enables believers to hear and receive and believe God's word. And we've been looking at guiding principles that enable the church to build up one another in love. And our last principle of this text that we are going to see is the, the principle of propriety. The principle of propriety. And that is that a local church must build up each other in a proper orderly service, a proper orderly worship service. And again, notice verse 40 is the controlling verse of this passage. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 through verse 40. Would you stand with me as I read God's word and follow along with me as I read aloud 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, and we'll go through the end of the passage. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most, three, and each in turn. Let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Father, this morning we need your Holy Spirit to give us insight, to illumine our minds, to enable us to understand this text. So I pray for each believer in this room, may they have that understanding so they can apply and live out your word for your glory. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Each week, Jorge and I finalize an order of service. And that means in advance, we pray and we plan and we consider what the Lord would have us to do in this hour and a half set aside to worship Christ. And since this is not Jorge's church or my church or the elder's church, and it's not even your church, it's the church of Jesus Christ, the question isn't what we want to do. The question is, what would God have us to do? And so that's what question we ask. We say, what does God's word say we should do? God's word regulates our worship. And we ask the question, why should we do that? Or if we are already doing something, why do we do that? And we go back to God's word and ask that question of the word and seek the answer from the Lord. And the scripture gives us directions in what we are to do during a worship service like this. And we can see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that describes the, the first church and what they did when they gathered. You can go to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and see what the Apostle Paul told uh, a young pastor, Timothy, as to what they were to do in those churches that he pastored. Other epistles have sprinkled references of expectations of the weekly service. And then there's this text of scripture. That is 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14. These verses, these chapters, teach us about how we are to conduct a worship service like this. And our section of scripture teaches this principle that the local church must build up one another by conducting a worship service that's orderly, that's proper, that glorifies God. We're going to look at three different ways that we are to conduct this service in a way that honors the Lord. And the first way is this. A worship service that proper, properly honors God orders the service to build up believers. So this is on the forefront of our minds what are we doing? We are seeking to spiritually build each other up in the Lord. Notice verse 26. What then, brothers? So speaking to the church, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So, so notice first that this is the gathering of a local church. Verse 26, when you come together. Remember in 1 Corinthians 11, five times we saw this phrase. And now in this passage, we can see it twice in 1 Corinthians 14. And it's clear here, Paul is addressing what we are doing right now as a local church. In verse 26, then Paul lists a number of potential elements for this gathering. Notice first, there's a hymn. This could refer to reading a psalm. This could refer to a prayer or also to singing. Then there are lessons. This refers to teaching a passage or teaching a particular doctrine. And then notice in verse 26, he lists revelation. This could include going for them to the Old Testament and reading the book of Deuteronomy, or maybe the prophet Isaiah. It could refer to already revealed revelation. I think also it 
included the gift of prophesying. Remember, three weeks ago, we learned that the, the gift of prophesying was a supernatural gift given by the power of the Holy Spirit at a particular time in redemptive history to a person so they could receive revelation from God and then relay that to God's people. So there's an aspect here of prophecy where they are receiving and giving revelation. So I think this is probably what this is talking about here. Remember in the New Testament church, this early church, they had prophets and they had those gifted with the ability to prophesy. We do not have that anymore in this age. And the reason why is because we have the completed New Testament. They did not have the epistles. They did not have the gospels. They did not have the book of Revelation. So they needed prophets to declare God's word. They needed those with the gift of prophesying to be able to declare God's word. Now we have 66 books of the Bible. This is the sufficient word of God. As Peter says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have a more certain word of prophecy in the scripture. The next he listed a tongue or an interpretation. And notice how both those again go together, a tongue or an interpretation. And this is a reference to speaking in tongues, the supernatural gift to speak praises to God in a real human language, which was unknown to the speaker. Now, if you're here for the first time, or if you haven't been here for a while, this was what we talked about the last two weeks. And if you want to learn about that, you got to go back to those sermons and read or listen to that. And you can read the text in 1 Corinthians 14 and understand that. But you have the person who is able to pray in another language that they don't know. And then someone else is needing to stand up and interpret that for those who don't speak that language. And, of course, the purpose of this was a sign to the Jewish unbelieving people, to the unbelieving Israel, that God was setting them aside for a time. This was a sign of judgment for them, but also a sign of blessing for the Gentiles because now the gospel is open to the Gentiles. And he's saying here that there must be tongues. And notice also that there should be, there not must be tongues, but that with tongues must have also interpretation. And why is that? What does he say in verse number 26? Why is it that that must go together? And why do we have hymns and lessons and revelation and a tongue and interpretation? Let all things be done for what? For building up. Or your scripture might have a translation that says edification. We, if you look at this verb here of be done, it's a present tense imperative. In other words, this is a command for the church. This is something that's to take place every week. Every week, what should be in our mind is how do we build up one another? Seven times in chapter 14, we see this concept that we are to gather to build up the church. And so Paul's point here is once again, everything we're doing during this time is for discipleship. The purpose of this service is not evangelism, it's discipleship. However, we recognize that unbelievers may be present, and that's a good thing. In fact, he actually addresses that in verse 24, and that's why he says we need to prophesy, and in other words, declare God's word. Verse 24, notice that, verse 24, 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, so speaking of entering into the worship service, he is convicted by all, that is the word of God being declared. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, face, this is conversion. He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So the scripture is saying that there could be an unbeliever that comes in. And you know why it's so important for you to declare God's word? Because if they hear God's word, they can be convicted of their sin and they can believe in Jesus Christ. There's a story that Charles Spurgeon used to tell about his life. He was a 15-year-old boy walking in a snowstorm. And he couldn't get to the place he was going to go, so he had to stop off in a Methodist church. And he had not been to a Methodist church before. All he knew about the Methodists, at least at this time, is that they sang really loudly and gave you a headache. But he went in anyways, and of course, since there was a snowstorm, there were only a few people in there, about 15 people. The pastor was actually snowed in. He couldn't even come to church. So a skinny, poor layman got up there. That's how he described him. He was not very articulate at all, but he preached on Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And this man fumbled through his sermon and Charles Spurgeon, when he would tell this story, said it wasn't a very good sermon at all. But at the very end, this man went into the character of Christ and he said, look unto me, I am bleeding sweat, great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I've died and I've been buried. Look unto me, I've risen again. Look unto me, I'm ascended to the right hand of my father. Look unto me and be saved. Then he pointed his finger at Charles Spurgeon and he said, young man, you look miserable. Look unto Christ and be saved. And Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon was an unbeliever as a 15-year-old boy in that service, and he believed in Christ. So you don't know who God would bring into the church service. And so I think it's important in a service like this to present the gospel. I, I want to do that each week and call people to believe in Christ. In fact, you may be in here, maybe not a snowstorm, but maybe there's another reason that God brought you here. And I believe that. I believe if you're here, it's because God has placed you here it's a divine appointment, and I want you to know this. Here's the message of God to you. Look unto Christ and be saved. So we gather as a church, and we give the evangelistic call, but that is not the primary reason that we gather each week. A worship service that properly honors God orders the service to Build up believers. And I think I was supposed to show this to you, and I didn't. It's in the bulletin. You can see what is the gift of tongues. And you can read about that in there. So I ask, church, if you would pray for us. Pray for Jorge. Pray for myself. Pray for the elders. As we order the service, what we're putting together, we're praying that God would help us to build up one another. Would you pray for us as we do that? Would you pray for the church that we would all be built up? 
that spiritually God would use this time to encourage us, to, to comfort us, to convict us, to draw us closer to the Lord? And would you commit to valuing this time as a church? And so a worship service that properly honors God orders the service to build up the church, but also to communicate God's word clearly and intelligibly. Clearly and intelligibly. In fact, notice verse number 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So again, this is the supernatural ability to praise God in a foreign language unknown to the speaker. This is the gift of tongues. And and again, the purpose is a sign for unbelieving Israel. And what Paul is saying here is that there should never be a worship service where someone is, is giving this sign and praying, or I should say praising God in this way without someone interpreting. That's what he says there in verse 27, that there should there should be someone interpreting, and there should be at least two or three in the service. Or should there, there should be no more, I should say, than two or three. Verse 28, and if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So this text is clear that utilizing the sign of tongues must only be done when there's a translator. And there should never be more than two or three at a time in a service. And this is important. This was important for this church. But I think also it's important for us to consider this is speaking to us about having order in the church. But also I kind of want to address something else because there are those today who don't wouldn't teach that speaking in tongues is what I've been teaching the past number of weeks. They have a different understanding of the gift of tongues. But they don't follow these rules that are found here in 1 Corinthians 14, 27, and 28. And so let's, let's just let's pretend that they're right about their view on the gift of tongues. Let me ask a couple questions. Do those churches claim to speak in tongues... Do those churches that claim to speak in tongues, do they have translators? Do they take turns? Are they doing it at the same time? That's against the rules. Or do they take turns? And are there more than three in one service? So clearly in this text, he lays out the rules. And so if you're not following those rules, then you're disobeying God. And you can't disobey God and claim to be experiencing the blessings of God at the same time. They don't go together. So if their view of the gift of tongues is correct, they should abide by these instructions found here in the word of God. This early church, they had this community of Jews. So this was a gift still operating in that local church. And Paul instructed them that they needed to have a translator. Why? So it could be intelligible. So people could understand. In other words, everything that happens in the service must be something that is clear and understandable so that we can all be edified. And for our church, we must make sure that we are clearly 
and intelligibly communicating God's word. This service is for children. This service is for adults. This service is for those who are auditory learners or logical learners or analytical thinkers or those people who love stories and storytellers. This is for the young. This is for the old. This is for all types of believers. We're not gearing this service for the highly intellectual or the super simple, right? We're saying this is different type of people in here, but what we need to do is we need to make sure everything we're doing is clear and it's understandable. So I want to make sure that the youngest in here and the oldest in here, the smartest in here and the simplest in here can understand God's word. A number of weeks ago, I guess a couple months ago, I preached at a funeral and I was officiating the service and I uh, had about 10 minutes at the beginning of the service that I gave over to uh, the other side of the family because they were Catholic and they wanted their Catholic priest to get up and say a few words. And so I didn't officiate that part. I let him do that. And then I took the rest of the service. And when he got up to speak, he read some prayers and some poems. I'm not really certain exactly what he said, because a lot of it was he looked down, he mumbled and it was jumbled. And I couldn't really even know what was going on. All I know is he was waving his hands and he'd say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and everyone would say, Amen. And the point was, I realized this guy was going through the ritual of what he does at a, at a funeral. And then when I got up to speak, I had two goals. Number one, I wanted to make sure that everyone in there that knew this individual, that they remembered this person's life. And also, number two, I wanted to make sure that Christ was honored by the gospel clearly being declared. So what I was saying, I wanted to make sure everyone in that room understood. That was my goal. And I think that what we see in churches, and particularly in church history, is that Satan's work is to muddle the waters of truth. Satan doesn't want God's word to be clear. And I think that's why you see for, for centuries there was a time when the Catholic Church would not let the Bible be translated into the language of the people. They used the Latin Vulgate, and the problem is most people didn't understand Latin anymore. So you would come to a service, you would hear the Word of God read, or maybe someone would speak about it, but it would be in Latin, a prayer maybe in, in Latin, and they wouldn't understand it. And so in the Middle Ages, the churches were filled with unregenerate people. For instance, in 1394, a bill was presented to the English Parliament forbidding anyone to read the Bible in English without a bishop's license, without a pastor's license. From 1401 to 1409, the Roman Catholic Church publicly burned those who translated a Bible into English or read an English translation. But there were men and some women as well who stood up for the truth. One of those men who was courageous was John Wycliffe. He defied the Catholic Church, Church translated the Bible into English, and copied it by hand. Because this is before the whole printing press stuff, right? And he was able to see the word of God spread in English. And we actually have a lot to think, or we, ha we have him to thank for 
the word of God being in English. And he risked his life to enable those people to clearly understand God's word and be saved. So thank the Lord for that. So a worship service must honor the Lord by ordering the service in a way that communicates the word of God clearly. And then last of all, that orders the service to submit to God's order of authority. A worship service that properly honors God orders the service to submit to God's order of authority. In verse 29 and following, Paul lists instructions for those who speak God's word through prophesying. In the following verses, what we're going to see is that the service must have order. There must be a decorum. This is not a free-for-all, and that's actually forbidden according to what we see here in God's word. But also I want you to observe that we are to do all that in submission to God's order of authority. As we go through this text, notice that God has placed an order of authority in the church. Notice verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So in verse 29, there are those who are prophesying. And notice, others are to weigh what is said. What What is that speaking about? Well, to weigh is to discern. It's to seek the truth about something. So what was taking place with this way what was said was that there were those designated in the church who were to discern if this prophecy was true or not. In fact, notice this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and notice that this was actually a gift by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12. Notice in verse 10, these are gifts listed for this church. Verse 10, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. So in this list, you have these pairs. You have the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation or translation. And then you have the gift of prophecy and the gift to ability of the ability to distinguish between spirits. Spirit, or to discern the truth about that prophecy. I think this is similar to what we see with 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 through 21. I brought this up a couple weeks ago, but this letter, 1 Thessalonians, was probably written when Paul was in Corinth. So think about that. That's the context here. And Paul writes, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So once again, these gifts of prophesying and discerning spirits were gifts given to this early church, right? For a particular reason, we've talked about that before. But notice here that it's under the authority, or notice the order of authority within the local church. You couldn't have someone that just got up and said, okay, I decided, thus says the Lord, and they said something, without someone else coming up and saying, let me discern if that is true or not. So so you see, when they had the gift of prophesying, they had the gift of someone weighing what was said or someone that was discerning the truth about someone. And then also notice this, the one prophesying, the one discerning, 
what was being said, discerning the truth about something, they were also under authority. They were under the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. They were under the authority of the apostles. Look down in verse 34. You can see this in verse 34. Paul appealed to the authority of the Old Testament. Notice the end of verse 34. He wrote, the law, that is the Old Testament, the law also says. So Paul appealed to the authority of the Old Testament. Notice verse 37. Paul wrote that the prophets were under the authority of his apostolic teaching. Verse 37. You must acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So whose authority were the prophets under? Under the apostle Paul. Whose authority was Paul under? The Lord. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign over the church, over all things, but he's the head of the church. He has given us the scripture as the authority for the church. That's the Old and New Testament. That is the authoritative, the authoritative word of God. We, there are there for appointed authorities in the church who are doing what I'm doing, declaring God's word. And we are to submit to the Lord, to his word, and to his order of authority. So go back to verse 30 and just notice how you see this order of authority throughout this text. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Or you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and also be encouraged. The phrase you can all prophesy means that all the prophets had the equal right to speak but they had to take turns. In other words, someone couldn't just come up and say, word from the Lord, and someone else say, nope, sit down, I got one. You know, it's like, no, take turns. Let someone else come up and do it in turn. And then look at verse 32. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me read for you the New Living Translation. I don't really recommend that translation, but sometimes it gives a helpful commentary. This is what this verse says in the New Living Translation. Remember the people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. So this verse tells us that when the Holy Spirit is in control of a prophet, the prophet is still in control of his mind, of his spirit. So when the spirit was in control, the prophet remained under control. Henry Morris wrote this, the gift of prophecy was not to be exercised in a trance-like state with the prophet being used like a robot. Each true prophet was in full control of his faculties. So the prophet could speak one at a time, each in proper order, and all were fully capable of stopping and deferring to each other if it was clear that he also had a message from God. So this verse informs us that when the Holy Spirit is in control of you, you have self-control. This is contrary to what many pastors and what many churches do, where the guy shakes or says he's out of control. He can't control myself anymore because the Holy Spirit's upon me. Or I got to say something, you know, the Holy Spirit. I was in a service once a number of years ago, and there was a guy who preached and he walked down, and a guy got on stage, and he said, 
I want to apologize because I knew that guy shouldn't be preaching because the Holy Spirit spoke to me and told me that I should have been the one up here. And it was like this guy was basically saying, like, I'm the one in charge of the service. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to me, everyone else does what I want to do. And the point is, it's kind of like when the Holy Spirit's in control of me, I'll be out of control, right? No, that's not actually how it works. So some people think the sign of the Holy Spirit is shaking, babbling, falling down. But actually, the fruit of the Spirit, Ephesians or Galatians 5.23 is what? The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So verse 32 is saying that the Holy Spirit allows a person to be in full control of his own spirit while they are supernaturally empowered to speak the word of God. So why? Why must there be this order? Why must a person have self-control? Why must there be a structure to the service? Well, verse 33 says the reason. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You see, biblical authority that is righteously administered and humbly submitted to can provide peace and security and a nurturing environment. Today's Father's Day. So let me honor my father by saying, I grew up in a home that had a father who loved us. And he was the authority in our home. And he cared for us. He provided for us. He loved my mom. I saw him all growing up show care and concern and put her before himself. That was a nurturing environment. When I think of my growing up, I have good memories growing up. I don't have bad memories of my home. You know why? Because I was under an authority that was a biblical, godly, righteous authority. Now, I wouldn't say I submitted to it humbly and in the best way, but, but I, there was, a, there was a, a, a blessing, a context that God had put me in. And this is true in a godly family, and this is true in a, a righteous country. When a, when a country has a righteous government, I should say it that way, when a country has a righteous government, there's, there can be peace, there can be security. This is true in a loving marriage. This is true in a biblical church. However, on the opposite, when the authority is abusive, when the authority is evil, when the authority is selfish, or when those in authority create anarchy, there is suffering, there is confusion and chaos. But God is a God not of confusion, he's a God of peace. And man's way of doing things causes confusion and chaos, and God's way of doing things under a righteous order of authority can provide peace. And I think that's what he's talking about here. There's an order of authority that God has placed in the church, and when we are full of the Holy Spirit, submitting to the Holy Spirit. He will give us self-control, and as we do that, we will submit to his order of authority. Notice in verse 33, I want to make a grammatical note, and that is that the period in verse 33, I think, should be after the word peace, and the next sentence should start with as in. So notice verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also teaches. As the law also says. Paul wrote that this admonition was not cultural, 
it was not just confined to this local church. This admonition is for how many churches? What does it say in verse 33? As in churches in that day. No, churches in Corinth. In all churches of the saints. So some people like to take this and say, well, that was cultural. There's a big debate going right now right now in the Southern Baptist Convention. This is what they're debating. Well, that's a cultural mandate. Well, no, he actually says it's in all the churches. So this is what God expects for the churches of the saints. So then the question is, what does verse 34 mean? You're not nervous, are you? I hope not. I'm not. I'm enjoying this. Verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. So remember when we interpret verses like this, we remember the context, right? So the question is, what's the context? Is he speaking about prophesying? Well, it can't be that because go over to 1 Corinthians 11. Notice in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul actually says that women are prophesying and praying in the church service. Go to 1 Corinthians 11. Look at that in verse 3. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to look this up. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. So Paul gives an order of authority in the Trinity. God the Father is the head of Christ. He says there's an, there's an order of authority in marriage. The husband is the head of his wife. And then verse 4. And notice in verse 4, you're going to see this symbol again of authority. In the first century, the ladies had a symbol of authority on their head. That was a head covering that signified that they were married and they were living under the authority of their husband. They were living in submission to their husband. So it was a sign of obedience before the Lord. And so notice in verse number four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So notice this, men and women were both praying and speaking God's word in church. And the key distinction here in this text for a married woman was that she had a, a, had a symbol on her head that she was living in submission to her husband when she ministered. So go back to 1 Corinthians 14. Because therefore the question is, the women should keep silent. That's not speaking of prophesying, right? Because in context, Paul already said that that's allowed in the church. So what is this talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34? Well, Paul was speaking about those who prophesied. And then notice in verse 29, he talked about those who weigh in. So go back to verse 29, actually. Notice he says, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. So what I believe verse 34 in context is speaking about is saying that women should not weigh what is said in the church. In other words, a woman may prophesy, and she may do that with a head covering, showing that she's living in submission to her husband, but she must not stand up and disagree or put herself in an authoritative position that is reserved for the men who are elders in the church. She must not stand up and put herself and usurp the authority of someone who has the position to say, here's what the teaching of the church should be and is. 
this is speaking of a worship service, okay? So I don't think we should translate this over to Bible studies or to home groups or whatever it is, okay? We're talking about the gathering of a church in a worship service. So let's make sure we keep that context in there. And look at verse 34. He appeals to authority. The end of verse 34, as the law also says. So when he says the law, what is he speaking about? Well, he's speaking about the Old Testament, and I think he's particularly referring to Genesis 1 and 2. And why do I say that? Well, because in 1 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9, he already referred back to that. And I think he's referring to Genesis 1 and 2, to the order of the creation of man and woman. He talked about that in 1 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9. Also, Paul appealed to that same argument in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I put it on the screen so you don't have to turn there. If you want to turn there, you can. But just notice this on the screen up here. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So notice verse 13 on the screen there. You see the argument there is that the Old Testament, Genesis 1 and 2, says that Adam was formed first, then Eve. Therefore, this is the reason why this needs to be. So here's a question. What is 1 Timothy 2 teaching? Well, it's not saying that women can't speak in church. Why do we know that? Well, 1 Corinthians 11 says they can. And there's other texts we could go to as well. 1 Corinthians 11 clearly teaches women can pray and prophesy in church. And of course, again, the gift of prophecy was different back then than what we are doing here today. But I think, therefore, we can conclude it is appropriate for our women to sing, to read scripture, even to pray. Scripture gives that as an example. There's appropriate ways for them to be involved in the worship service, just as it is for men. First Timothy 2 is not saying women can't speak in church. First Timothy 2 is teaching that women are to learn. And think about that. Think about how countercultural was that back in that day, where, where it was, the idea was that women are the lower of society, the men are basically the real citizens, you know, and everyone else is out on the, all the women on the outside. But he's saying, actually, men and women, we are both here to learn. What he's teaching here is that they're to learn in a way that doesn't usurp the authority of those who are in authority in the church. So I think that the, the main thrust here is to learn, but he's doing it saying that they shouldn't do it in a way that's disruptive. And what would be disruptive? Well, it's, it's usurping the authority of the men who are the elders in the church. So to learn quietly means that they are learning not in a disruptive way, but in a way that honors the authority that God has put over the church. And why is that? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. So now, if you turn to 1 Timothy, go back to 1 Corinthians 14. I think 1 Corinthians 14 is speaking about a person weighing the validity of the truth of God's word. So Paul stated that it's not the role of women to assume that position. And, and what is that position? And I would argue that position is reserved for those who are in the position of pastor, also called teacher or elder. They're the ones who are to be the shepherds, the the gatekeepers for the theology of the church. And why is that? First Corinthians 14, why does he say that's the case? Is it Paul's opinion? 
Is it because culturally that's what they did? What does he say in verse 34? The very end. As the law also says. So Paul appealed to the authority of Scripture. And there, notice verse 35. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Again, I think this is in the context of weighing in on what is being said in a prophecy. So the idea is here, if you as a lady disagree with a teaching in the church, the proper way to handle it is if your husband's a believer, I think this assumes the husband's a believer, talk with your husband at home, and maybe after talking to him, you both go talk to that one. Or maybe within that context, you approach that person, that teacher, or that elder. But the heart of this instruction is to follow God's proper order of authority. And you might listen to that and think, that is so countercultural. I don't even know what I think about that. I would just say this. Would you be willing to trust what God's word says? Because God has order and authority so it can be a blessing so we can offer peace. Verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing, that's the apostolic writings to you, are a command of the Lord. So again, notice this appeal to authority. It's... it's Jesus Christ has given the prophets and the apostles who have given us the word of God, and that is over us. We are all to live in submission to that. Verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. We're done with 1 Corinthians 14. We trudge through that. But here's, the, here's a question I have. What does God want us to do with all that? Why is this all so important? I mean, so many details, so many this and that and all that. Well, I think God put all this in here because he really cares about this time. God values this part of our week. This is the Lord's day. This is the Lord's Day gathering. We are his people. He values what we do here. He really cares about it. So he's given us these instructions. And we can kind of go through it and be like, oh, there's so many this and that. And I'm trying to figure out what that means and this means. And I think we should come away saying, if God cares about this so much, this gathering, I should have that same care. If God values this, I should value it in the same way. And therefore, Let's pray for this time each week. Pray God will give wisdom to those who are leading, those who are serving. Prioritize it in our life. Let me give you some tips. Go to bed early on Saturday night. Right? If, if this is a, a very valuable time for you and your week, if I, if I could say this one this way, if this is the most valuable time for you and your week, then what, how will that change your schedule on Saturday night? And we also must be engaged. Let's come for the reason why God has put us together, and that is to spiritually build one another up.
and ask God to build us up as well. May we honor God as we gather as his church, because to him be glory in the church. Let's pray.